when our children were very young, we used to do an activity at night, usually during the, the uh, meal, called high and low, sharing highs and lows. You know what I'm talking about? You ever do this? Share your high from the day, low from the day, or high from the season, low from the season. There was a time when children cannot find a low. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's like they share the high, you go around and say, no, okay, share a low. And it's like, well, I didn't have a low. You know? I mean, it's, they're just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and everything's just rosy and great. Now, it wasn't, but they left it behind. And there's a need to sort of draw it out from them so that they can learn to reflect on the difficulties and the mixture of highs and lows of the day, to know themselves and to be willing to make themselves known. It's a great skill to be able to say, okay, I, I am neither going to deny that bad things happen, uh, nor am I going to um, dwell in self-pity. And to be able to reflect on the day, both in its mixture of highs and lows, is, is to be able to know yourself and be willing to make yourself known in a healthy way. But there's something more. And here's where we're going this morning. As a church, there is a gap between the way things are and the way that we know they should be. And as we think of our church or as the people of God across time and space, Standing in that gap, what, what does that look like? It, it looks like people who, and, and this is part of the lesson of highs and lows, it, it looks like people who recognize that they're neither without the burden of the way things are, nor the promise of the way things will be. And that's where we live. That's the gap. We're to stand in that gap between the burden of the way things are and the dream of how things are promised to be. This morning, let's, let's take a look at being a garden where we, we recognize the planting season is behind us. There is new life that is germinating under the soil, but the harvest has not yet come. How, this morning, we're going to ask ourselves, how, how do we stand in the gap? And the answer is that we stand longing, longing. From the Word of God, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so this morning, Lord, by your word, strengthen our faith, increase our hope that we may live an enduring love. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the most important quotations from from a guy who gets quoted a lot. C.S. Lewis is this one. If you read history, you will find the Christians, that the Christians begin the most for the present world are just the ones. The, the Christians that, that do the most for the present world are just the ones who thought about the next the apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, for example. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth. Why? They left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, this is his famous quotation, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. This morning we're going to be talking about what it takes to stand in that gap, to live between two worlds. Last week, I talked about the city of God and the city of man and how they occupy the same time and space. Right now, they occupy the same time and space. That you can have a, you know, a dentist working in one room and a dentist working in another room, and one is oriented to the kingdom of this world, and the other is oriented to the kingdom of God. And as a result, their work, one is doing work that will endure, and the other is doing work that will not endure. Where are you working? How do you stand in this gap of the already and the not yet? There's, there's no other place in Scripture that so clearly shows us that we stand between two worlds as this one in Romans 8. How do we stand between two worlds? How do we, how do we stand knowing that, you know, the, the way that you're feeling about your life is probably about right. It's a mixture. It's always a mixture. The, the bright parts of it are always tinged with some shadow. But the shadowy parts are never beyond the scope of God's ability to help you dream a better dream for a future. How do we, in other words, how do we bring the dream of the future more into the now? How do we do that? 
Is that a better question? Can you, can you wrap your mind around that question? The, the, the dream of the future is, is, is given to us and promised to us. But how do we realize more of that dream today? And the answer that we're going to explore this morning is that we long for it. Because longing is part burden, to take on the burden of this world. The burden of this world, right? But never outside of the hope of the dream. So to long is both burden and dream. Let's see what it looks like to put those two things together. To long for the future in a way that realizes more of the future into the present is to long for it as part burden and part dream. We're going to look at, at, at that longing in terms of the way we pray, the way we solve problems, and the way we interact with other people, okay? So we're longing for the future. We're dreaming a dream with the burden of, of the now in terms of prayer and problems and people. First of all, in terms of your prayer life, it starts off with prayer. Verse 26, it's talking about your prayer life. How do you long in prayer? How do you long in such a way that, that, that embraces both the burden and the dream? Well, the answer is pretty clear. It says in verse 26, you groan. Groan for it. That doesn't mean that all your prayer is just groaning. But it is saying that we're willing to go there, to go to a place where we don't have words for what we're dealing with in prayer, in life. We're willing to put ourselves vulnerably before God without the right words. Now, some people have speculated that maybe this is, this is a glossolalia. That's a, that's a, a Greek term for speaking in tongues. That is decidedly not what this is about. This isn't a secret prayer language. This is, it goes on and reinforces, it says, that spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Too deep for words. In other words, we don't know what we're praying in the moment. We don't have words for what we're praying. We don't fully understand what we're praying. That there's, a, there's an appropriate time in your prayer life, in, in your prayers, where it's not formulized, where you don't even have words for what you're trying to express to God in prayer. There's a time for that. In fact, it's saying it's very important that we pray that way at times. Why is that? Well, because two things are happening. You're, you're, you're feeling the burden of the world, but you're also taking it before God with a dream. You're feeling that sense of, the darkness of what you're dealing with today and the disappointment of what you're dealing with today and the thing that isn't quite ever working out fully the way you want it to, but yet the hope that God says, cast all your cares before me for I care for you. To be in that place is to stand in the gap between the way things are and the way things will be. To learn, in other words, to be a Christian is to be a person who's willing to stand in that gap to groan between the way things are and the way things are promised to be. It's tough. It's tough to be in that place. You know who, who demonstrates uh, beautifully, uh, someone who, who demonstrates beautifully for us what it looks like to stand in that gap? Are you seeing it? Can you think of who we can model this after? And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he says, remove this 
cup from me. The cup of what? The cup of wrath throughout the Old Testament. The cup represents God's wrath being poured out. Jesus is to drink that cup of wrath, and he knows what's coming. He knows the depths of his soul, what's coming, and he knows that he doesn't want it. He doesn't, doesn't like it. He doesn't want two plus two to equal four, and yet he has permission to say, Lord, let two plus two not equal four. He knows it's coming, and yet he prays what he wants, what he desires. You see? And at the same time, then, with the other hand, he prays with two hands. Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. This is how we pray. I don't ever want you to forget this. You pray, you and I are called to pray with two hands. Two hands. Let this cup pass, yet not my will, but your will be done. The Spirit intercedes. It says, verse 26, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And then it says in verse 27, it says, it intercedes, the Spirit, He intercedes for us. He intercedes according to the will of God. And so to, to come before the Lord to say, this is what I want, but not my will. Not, it, it is not to say, Lord, I must have this. I'm going to hold you hostage. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be upset until you give me what I want. No, not one hand. Nor is it to say, Lord, I'm not going to tell you what I want. I'm not going to say, I, don't, I didn't have any lows today, God. Right? Like, <laughs> like, uh, like our young children. Oh, I didn't have any lows. Thy will be done. See, God's saying, pray with two hands. Stand in the gap. Be a people who are willing to say, I am open to your leading, Lord. And yet, at the same time, people who are authentically known to themselves and making themselves known to God. This is what it looks like to long for the future in your prayer life. You know, we've, we have some friends who reinforce this idea in prayer that, you know, a lot of times what we think of is, well, let's just skip to the chase. Lord, you're sovereign, and so uh, your will be done. Let's just skip to the chase, right? And sometimes um, that, that preempts what we really want, as we just talked about. And so a, a way of thinking about this, one way of thinking about this that some friends of ours uh, reinforce is pray the BPO, the best possible outcome. Lord, help me to be open to the best possible outcome with the idea that I'm groaning that I don't know what that is. And I'm willing to say, this is what I think I want, and yet, thy will be done. And so where do you arrive? Lord, okay, best possible outcome. Let me be open to what that is. Maybe I know what it is. Maybe, I've already, maybe I already sense what it is. Maybe what I want is, is being guided by your will through the Holy Spirit. But maybe it's not. And so, Lord, I resolve to release <laughs> the universe from being held hostage by my prayers, best possible outcome. This is what it looks like to long, to have burden and dream together, to pray with two hands, to know what it looks like to stand in the gap between two worlds in prayer. Second, how do we solve problems longing by people who are willing to stand in the gap? How do we how do we approach our problems with this kind of longing, with one part burden, one part dream? How do we approach our problems as ones standing 
between two worlds, both in the city of man and the city of God? How do we, how do we approach our problem solving? And the answer is often, often the answer is that we must be people willing to wait. To wait. I know it's no fun. That's not fun. But God is always doing something when we wait. Waiting is a huge part of the Old Testament. So much so it's it's assigned its own number. You know what the number is for waiting in the Old Testament? Waiting has its own number. 40. Go look up anything associated with 40. Go to Isaiah 40. Go to to, uh, uh, Psalm 40. Go look at the 40 days, any of the 40 days, any of the 40 years. It's all about people who are willing to deal with the problems of the day by waiting, waiting in the gap to stand and learn how to wait. Oh, that's tough. You know, one of the tough phone calls I always make is when I know somebody is waiting between the, uh, the test and the answer to the test, right? Uh, a medical test, for example. Somebody who has a diagnosis but not, uh, but not a prescription. Or somebody who, who knows that, that there's a, a symptom and they've looked into the symptom but they haven't said anything about what the diagnosis is yet. That's a very difficult place to wait. And it's a hard phone call to make. I mean, I, th- there's nothing to say because you just, you just have to reassure the person, I'm with you in the waiting I'm not going to try to pat your hand and say, there, there, dear, it's going to be all right. It might not be. But I'm with you in the waiting with eager expectation. See, this is what this passage is really all about. Do you have a sense of eager expectation that, I mean, we're very, we're very clear about the problems, right? So when we're approaching the problems as people who long, we, we know exactly what, what the problem, we can diagnose it. We can say, this, is, this isn't right. Lord, I want this to be different. We're, very, we're experts in that, aren't we? But are we experts in eager expectation? Just like we're praying with two hands, so we solve problems in the waiting with both clarity about what's wrong, not pretending it away, not pretending that, well, you know, progress. Okay, so, so here's, here's what competes with the Christian worldview in this. We need to be people who are willing to say, there's something wrong, but I have eager expectation that even in the places that things are wrong, that there's something going on that's important in the waiting place. That's, that's, the, Christian, that's the Christian posture. The modern world's posture is this myth of progress, the idea that we're basically creatures created that we're good and uh, we're basically good and that, um, that time is bending towards progress. It doesn't. It ebbs and flows. You know, we get better, we get worse. You know, we develop the iPhone, then we do crazy things with it. You know, you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's, that, that's, it's like, look, things are getting, we're getting so much better at communicating. Yeah, we're getting so much better at communicating with each other. We, we developed this internet. Isn't it amazing how it's like the Tower of Babel? We, we can all come together. and Now, what are we doing with it? We're beating the heck out of each other with it. Um, yeah, I, I confess 
every now and then that I do go on Twitter and I read. And, and originally, I, I joined Twitter in order to have people push to me the articles and the books and the things that they're reading uh, because it's like, hey, I've got my own magazine just being built for me, right? They're just pushing it right to me. And now I, I can barely go on there. It's just, it's just so disheartening to see how mean people are to each other. You think, see, my point is, is that this myth of progress, that human beings are basically good, and that we're just going to get better and better and better and better? No. <laughs> Technology can't solve the deepest problems of the human heart. And so we have to approach the problems, recognizing we always have a burden, but we always have a dream. And verse 28 says, in all things, God works to the good, right? In all things. That, means, that doesn't mean he's going to resolve every problem that you have. But it does mean that the problems that you have are important. That if you're waiting with a problem, there's something important going on in the waiting. That in all things, God is at work to the good. We long, we know, we recognize, we don't pretend away. We don't say, oh, it's just all about progress and, you know, things are, are going to work out fine. There are going to be some things that aren't going to work out for you and for me in the short run. But never to the exclusion of the dream. That in the waiting, that in the places where things aren't quite right, there may be something, there is always something that God is doing in your life during the time you're waiting. Paul, Paul in his famous uh, passage where he's talking about the thorn in his flesh, right? The thorn in his flesh. He says, three times I prayed to the Lord to remove the thorn, right? How many times have you prayed for certain thorns? Admit it, it was probably four times, right? <laughs> Maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And Paul recognizes that there are certain things that might, he might need to release. And say, Lord, your, your strength is perfected in my weakness. Maybe this is one of those things where I need to just simply trust there's a great story that, about what I'm, what I'm speaking about. And I, I want us to, to dwell here for just a minute because I really, I really have been thinking about how do, I, how do I internalize and how do you internalize that in the waiting, God is at work. He's at work in all things. All things. And so I, when I think about this, I, one of the stories that comes to mind is written by a, a guy who wrote a bunch of parables. And he, made the, he wrote them about 100 years ago, but he wrote them to sound old, which is kind of fun. So he wrote them in Elizabethan language. And he tells these stories about his family life. His, his wife's name is Keturah. And one time he comes in, and he, he sees his wife making donuts. She's got a cauldron there, and oil is boiling there. And so... She takes, uh, she's taking the donuts, she's, she's um, turning them over, and she's cooking the donuts. He comes in, he smells that smell wafting from the kitchen, and, and he's describing in this story, wow, this is going to be a good night. This is gonna, we're going to have some, some donuts. And he's, he's, he's giving this detail. And then he comes to her and he says, he says to his wife, you know, what, what is the purpose of the whole of the donut? 
What's the purpose of the hole? If, if, if the donut is, is so good with something punched out, how much better would it be if we had just left that part in there as well, right? And this is, I'm going to pick up the story. I'm going to read you the rest of the story. This is what his wife, Keturah, says. And she says, again, Elizabethan language is kind of fun. She says, and Keturah answered and said, thou speakest as a fool who is never content with the goodness that is, but always complaineth against God for the lack of goodness he thinketh is not. If there were no hole in the donut, then it were like unto Ephraim, a cake not turned. Now, okay, so this is, this is a woman who knew her Bible, her Old Testament Bible. So Ephraim, so Manasseh was the first son of Joseph. So, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph is the last son of, of Jacob, right? And Joseph is the one who sold, he's sold in slavery. He's the second in command in Egypt. And then he has sons, and he takes Ephraim to be blessed by Jacob before Jacob dies. And, and Ephraim becomes sort of the the primogenitor. So he, he becomes the one through whom Israel grows into this. And so at one point, I know this is sort of confusing, but at one point, Israel is called Ephraim because Ephraim had become such a great clan, but they turned from God. They wanted, so I, I think, this is just a hunch, but I think that this is the origination of having your cake and eating it too. Because, uh, because what, what she's referencing is that Ephraim uh, was like, uh, like a cake that you never turned over. They used to cook cakes on the, just coals that were you know, just low, low, uh, low heat. And so the top part was all doughy, but the bottom was, was, was hardened and crusted and burned. Right? It's like, I want to cook my cake, but I don't really want it to cook. See, that, that was Israel. That was Ephraim at the time. It was like... We want to be faithful to God. We want to trust in God. But yeah, we really want to have things our own way too. You see what the reference is? She's, so she's, she's making a pretty funny joke there. She's saying, if, <laughs> if the donut hole weren't punched out, right, then it would be like unto Ephraim, a cake not turned. For though the cake were fried till its edges were there unburnt as hard as thy philosopher's stone, yet there would be uncooked dough in the middle. Yea, though thou shouldst break thy teeth on the outer rim of every several donut, and the middle part thereof would be raw dough. Now listen to what he says. He says, And I meditated on what Keturah had told me, and I considered the empty spaces in human life the desolation of its vacancies, and how hearts break over its blank interstices. And I pondered in my soul whether God doth not know that save for these, these blank places, these unanswered questions, these gaps in our life, except for these, then our lives would be like unto Ephraim. And I spoke of these things to Keturah, and she said, I know not the secret of these mysteries. Yea, mine own heart acheth over some of its empty places. But say unto those who are able to hear that the person who useth not the good things which he hath, but complaineth against God for those he lacketh, is like unto those who rejected the donut because he knoweth not the secret of the whole. Now maybe... Maybe you can begin to internalize that God is using your life to perfect your faith, not using your faith to perfect your life. 
And so when we, when we move towards our problems, we move towards them with praying hands, both what we want and yet thy will be done. To long for the burden, to, to take on the burden of the problems, but never outside the dream. To take on the dream of the way things could, should be or could be, but never without that sense of dependency on God, that he may be doing something more important than is on your agenda in the waiting, in the meanwhile. Finally, this. <laughs> We've talked about ourselves. We've talked about our prayer life. We've talked about the problems we're solving. Now let's talk about other people. Because as a garden, as, as a Christian in a garden, we're called to take on the burden and the hope of other people as well, to bear one another's burdens. Let's look at where, where Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, because sometimes you have to read really closely sometimes to see just how he's putting it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son. That's pretty clear, right? We're supposed to become like Jesus. In order that he might be, and now he's talking about Jesus. Is he talking about Jesus? No, he's talking about you. Listen. He says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many. That's his point. You're to become like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn and you might follow after him. What did Jesus do? Jesus took on the burdens and the hope of our world. Jesus was the firstborn. His death and resurrection, we stand between. We stand between the time when the death and resurrection speak and his coming again when the city of God will be manifest. You see, we're standing in the gap the way that Jesus entered in the gap for us. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked out at us. He looked out at, at the people whom he had made, who had turned from him, and he said, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We're called to be those kinds of people, to look out into the faces of those who betray us, to look out into the brokenness of this world, to look out into the diagnoses and the times when people are just simply limping along and, and, and to bear their burden, but with the hope of a dream. You see? To long on behalf of other people. That's our call. Verse 29. It's to go ahead of them. The way Jesus went ahead for us. It's to be the firstborn among those who are being saved, among those of, in your life. You know, you know, a lot of times people are just so hung up about uh, evangelism. How do you do it and the tools that you have it and how awkward it might be to share your faith with somebody. Just go care for them. Just go bear their burdens. Go hope alongside them and see what God does. He'll open a door. He'll speak even through the way that you're caring for them. You're earning the right to be heard. They may wonder, why are you different among all the people who are reaching out to me? Tell me more about you. Let me learn more about you. So, it makes me think of this old story. Tony, Tony Campola tells this story about a guy named Joe who was at this mission. He was a drunk. Uh, he was a mean old cuss. Everybody on the streets knew he was just a miserable person, angry, bitter. And then Joe, Joe became a Christian, and he was totally different. He, was, he, he became a, a servant leader in that mission. 
He became somebody who reached out to all kinds of people. He became somebody you could count on. He became someone who was the most joyful person in the room. And one day there was another fellow who was just down on his luck, and he was, he was at this, this gathering, and uh, he knew Joe. He understood who Joe was about, and, um, and, and he was drawn into this meeting where they were, they were worshiping. And at the very end, he was, just felt convicted about his own sin. And he, he lingered after the meeting, and he was there by himself. And the director of the mission uh, heard him, uh, him pleading before God, and he kept saying, God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. God, make me like Joe. And the guy comes up behind him, puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, maybe you should be praying, make me like Jesus. And the man looked up at him, and he said, is he like Joe? <laughs> that can be you. You're called to be Joe such that people might say, well, I, I really want, what, what I'm seeing in Joe, I'm seeing Jesus in Joe. I'm seeing Jesus in you. I'm seeing someone who can stand in the gap between the way things are and the way we dream that things could be. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for standing in the gap for us and that you've given us not only an example but you've given us a power such that you even pray in our inaudible moments, our grunts, our groans. Lord, as a result of being willing to be in that posture between the already and the not yet, between two worlds, would you make us more like Jesus that people might confuse us for him? In Jesus' name, amen.